Hey guys, it's Trent. And Brittany. Here from the Root of Random. Before we begin, we would like to let you know about our awesome podcast host, Anchor. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. The app has tools built in that make it easy to record your audio, add music, and preset sounds right from the app. It's one of the few free podcasting platforms, and Anchor will distribute your podcast for you on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can even make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. How awesome is that? It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. Now, let's get back to learning about random topics. Welcome to the Root of Random, where we're going to talk about something so random, you're going to think, why do we know this? We're your hosts, Trent and Brittany. This week, we'll be talking about menstruation and its implications on society. Yeah, and this is a topic that is really particularly interesting to me. I started researching menstruation and the history behind it and menstrual technologies back in my junior year of college when I began working on my thesis. I was a history major in college, so I was working on a historical thesis, and Ever since then, my interest in this topic has just continued to grow, and um, that's what we're going to talk about today, is the history of menstrual technology, the stigmatization of periods, and menstruation in religion. Brittany, can you tell us why periods are so hard to talk about? Why is nobody discussing them? You know, there are so many people who still are offended by periods, but there are also a lot of people in today's society that are trying to push for the acceptance of periods as a normal human function. Um, but periods have long been stigmatized. In the late 19th and early 20th century, for example, women on their periods were seen as weak. They were sometimes barred from attending school or work. Um, and physicians were even concerned that menstruation would affect women's psychology. And this is something that you still see impacting women today. People think that menstruation somehow impacts women's ability to use their brains, which is just completely untrue. But as a result of these views, it became really beneficial for women to try and conceal their periods because... If people knew they were menstruating, it really limited their ability to advance either professionally or personally um, because it was considered shameful. Periods became a real source of shame for many women. And in my research uh, back in college, I was particularly interested in the invention of the tampon and how that impacted women. Tampons allowed women to pass as a non-menstruating person. And they provided invisible protection that you could wear with pants. Um, you could wear a tampon without fear or shame of anyone seeing a bulge from a sanitary napkin. And so the invention of tampons and implementing them into use really allowed women to escape from the prejudices that they associated, that society associated with menstruation. You would think that after thousands of years of periods, this would just become a normal part of society. Why is it such a huge deal to people? Is it because men and women weren't viewed as equals? What causes it? Yeah, I feel like it definitely does have something to do with the inequalities between men and women. And if we're going to talk about why people to this day still think it's such a big deal, we need to go into how it was perceived in early culture and religion. If we go back to the early tribal religions 
and you look and think about how menstruation would have been seen by them. I mean, it's no wonder that primitive religions incorporated taboos around the menstrual process. Without an understanding of the scientific process behind it, it would seem incredibly scary uh, for a woman of a certain age to have these cyclical recurring bleeds. Like, there was no physical reason why these women should be bleeding, and so people in the tribe started to think that maybe it was a religious reason. Maybe these women were cursed. Maybe something strange and scary was happening to them. And so they would begin separating these women from the rest of the tribe. And that's where the term minstrel huts became commonly used. And minstrel huts are still used in practice today in some religions, which to me is just... It's just crazy, but women would have to leave the village and self-isolate or isolate with other menstruating women in a menstrual hut during their period away from the rest of the tribe. And this could lead to them not having access to resources that they needed to maintain a lifestyle, um, to eat, to stay clean, to bathe. Um, and many major religions around the world have placed restrictions on menstruating women since the beginning of religion. Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism all have statements about menstruation and its negative effect on women, uh, leading to restrictions about physical intimacy, attending places of worship, and leading to women having to live separate from men. Um, Judaism, the Jewish law, expressly forbids any physical contact between males and females during the days of menstruation, and for a week thereafter. So for a two-week period, women and men are not allowed to have any kind of contact. So that includes things like sharing a bed, um, sexual intercourse, sitting on the same couch, and even eating after one another. So if you are an Orthodox Jew and you are a woman, for roughly two weeks out of every month, you're considered impure due to menstruation. And in the second week after menses, the woman undergoes a ritual bath um, and my pronunciation of this totally could be wrong, but I think it's called the mikvah. Um, and the source of this law in Judaism comes from Leviticus. I believe it's Leviticus 18, um, verse 19. And let me see if I can pull it up. It says that you shall not approach a woman in her time of unclean separation to uncover her nakedness. And then chapter 18 of Leviticus discusses all the different types of forbidden relationships, such as bestiality, incest. But all of the verses explicitly state that one may not have intercourse um, with a woman during menstruation. And the fact that the 19th verse mentions the word approach, um, as opposed to using the word intercourse, is the reasoning behind all of the menstrual laws that Judaism has, or that Orthodox Judaism has. Um, Christianity uh, is probably one of the most lenient religions uh, when it comes to menstruating women. Some sects of Christianity share the belief of the Old Testament views um, originating from that section of Leviticus. Um, so like extreme factions of the Russian Orthodox Church force women to live in menstrual huts. Um, and this is still something that is in practice today. And they're not allowed to have contact with men. They can't touch raw food. They are thought to repel animals, like game, fish, when hunting. And in the Eastern Orthodox Church, women are bid forbidden still to this day from taking communion during menstruation.
In Islam, there are two main prohibitions placed upon the menstruating woman. So first, she is not allowed to enter a shrine, she's not allowed to enter a mosque, and she's not allowed to touch the Quran. She also cannot pray or fast during Ramadan. And secondly, she's not allowed to have sexual intercourse for seven full days, beginning, um, the seven full days begin the first day that bleeding starts. In Hinduism, um, it views the menstruating woman as impure. Uh, they sometimes refer to it as a curse, like women are placed under a curse. And the, the belief that women are impure only lasts during the menses. So immediately after bleeding stops, they are no longer considered impure. But during their menstruation, women have to leave the house. Women have to leave the village and they live in a small hut outside of the village. And menstruating women often don't have access to clean water, they're not allowed to bathe, um, and they're not allowed to cook food, and they have to use separate utensils. So you can imagine how difficult that makes um, life for women practicing Hinduism when they're not able to take care of themselves and implement proper personal hygiene procedures. And then lastly in Buddhism, like I said earlier, it's very similar to Christianity, it's pretty lenient about views of women during menstruation, but it does teach that women are more spiritually vulnerable during menstruation. They're forbidden from entering temples during their period, and their menstrual blood is viewed as filthy and poison. So if you take all of these views, all these different religions, and how they view women of menstruation, and think about the collective whole, they're all... They're all promoting the idea that menstruation is bad, that menstruation is dirty, that menstruation is a curse, that it is something that makes you impure, which leads to people feeling shame. So women are taught from early ages that they should feel shame about their periods. They're taught um, it culturally, and they're taught it in their religions, and thus it develops this massive stigmatization of the menstrual cycle um, of women and of women on their periods and that's why it's something that is taboo it's why it's something that is not comfortable to be talked about even in society today so all these examples that you're giving those are all things that are still currently happening even though we now know the scientific or or you know anatomical reason as to why it's happening these you know religions are still viewing it as a negative thing? I think it's not just religions, but it's also culture. And it's so deeply ingrained in our society to view this as something that is shameful. And it's really hard to break down uh, belief systems that are so long ingrained. And it wasn't until there was massive negative effects from period technologies that policymakers started talking about menstruation and talking about something that is so natural for women in the public eye. I mean, dozens of women in the 1980s died of toxic shock syndrome associated with the Rely tampons. And what happened with those is they catalyzed the bacteria in the vagina to produce toxins. And I mean, we didn't talk about the impact of menstruation in public policy in government in the US really until that became an issue. And so by bringing menstruation out into the open, you're letting others know that it's okay to discuss um, and that it is something natural 
and that we shouldn't experience shame by it. So the first step in breaking the taboo really is talking about it and properly naming the word period and menstruation. Basically what you're saying is because nobody was talking about it, nobody had worked to do anything to advance the technologies until they did. And even afterwards, they didn't start making sure that the technologies that were being created were safe for women until after people started dying from them. Now, you mentioned that in order for us to appropriately talk about periods, that we need to name them, talk about them by name, right? So before, when people discuss periods, you said they didn't do it often, but before, what were people calling it? How did they have these discussions with one another? That is a really interesting point, Trent. And while researching and prepping for this podcast, our researcher, Corey, and I don't think we've mentioned her, but we have a researcher. Her name is Corey. Um, but she found a list uh, published by Clue. And Clue is a company that has an app to track your period. They're a very cool company. Um, but they did a survey of people around the world asking them to submit words that are commonly used in their countries instead of the word period or menstruation. And I feel like we should go through some of those. I'm going to pull up some of the lists and we can go through each country because this is really interesting. So in Germany, it says they use phrases like Red Army, tomato juice, or Aunt Rose is visiting. In France, they use vaginally out of order, the little clown with a nosebleed, and ketchup week. In Italian, sick week, Red Sea. In China, eldest aunt, old friend, Bloody Mary. In Japan, blood festival, girls day, the monthly things. In Spanish, uh, I am indisposed, the rule, the moon. In Russian, red day, red army, monsters. And then in English, we use Aunt Flo, time of the month, shark week and many others, but all of these euphemisms are further supporting and stigmatizing periods as something that is shameful and should be hidden. And we grow up learning, don't say you're on your period, don't say you're menstruating, you go, oh, I'm, I'm shark, it's shark week for me. Um, back in college, I conducted research on mother-daughter communication about menstruation, and I talked to a lot of middle school girls, and the most commonly used phrase that they used to talk to their friends about periods was Shark Week. And the reason they used this is because they didn't want the boys in their class to know that they were on their periods. So by saying Shark Week, um, or it's my Shark Week, the boys didn't understand that these women were menstruating because they grew up knowing that it was something that they should feel ashamed of and they should not talk about in the public eye. And one of the things to break down this taboo is that we have to talk about menstruation without using euphemisms. And I know that it is so awkward to discuss in public. Like, do you yourself, Trent, feel uncomfortable saying words menstruation, period, vagina? Yeah, I think, well, I see why you're asking that question because now that I think about it, like, those aren't some, that's something I'd maybe. I would feel fine talking about it in my home, maybe in private, but maybe not at a restaurant or something. That just seems a little odd to me. Um, so I, I understand where you're coming from with that. I think that's great that you feel comfortable talking about those words and those topics in your home, but a lot of people don't. A lot of people don't even feel comfortable bringing up those words 
to their mother uh, or their sister because of the stigma and shame around menstruation. So I guess you're actually, you have probably a very different viewpoint than a lot of people um, about saying those words. And it's not like I want people to be shouting from the rooftop that they're on their period or bringing it up at a restaurant because you don't really need to say while you're out at dinner with someone that you're bleeding out of your vagina. Like That's just not proper table talk. But I want it to be where people are no longer feeling shame around the fact that they experience a natural bodily function. People shouldn't feel scared to bring up their period to their sister, to their mother, to their aunt, to their best friend. They shouldn't feel shame about talking about periods with their doctor. Like some women are so uncomfortable with the idea of menstruation that they don't even talk about it comfortably with their doctor. And I think that that's where the real issue is. What about people who may not have access to these kind of resources? Like here in the United States, you can go to the pharmacy, go to any any grocery store, really, and you can buy products for menstruation. But what about in third world countries? What kind of things are they doing to um, to manage their periods? Yeah, um, before we talk about third world countries, I would still say that access to menstrual products um, or feminine hygiene products is still not readily available to the entire population because they're very expensive. Um, They're very, very expensive. Tampons, pads, everything is expensive. And a lot of people, even in America, have trouble affording them. And also you have to think about like homelessness. If you're homeless and you're a menstruating human, how are you supposed to handle that? And it's a huge issue, in, even in America, with our homeless population, women just don't have access to the feminine hygiene products that they need. Um, in third world countries, access to feminine hygiene products is very scarce. We can talk about India. You know, a great documentary that I would recommend everyone watch, and I believe it was I believe it's a Netflix creation, and it's called Period, End of Sentence. It's a documentary about this group of women in India that are creating um, pads, and they are producing them, manufacturing them, and distributing them to women across India because women do not have access to them. So a lot of places, people will cut up cloths and just shove them in their underwear, and then they will wash these cloths and hang them to dry. Um, it's just, but that's not a sanitary way of handling your period. Um, a lot of times you can't effectively clean the cloths. Um, some people don't even have access to cloths and just have to free bleed into their clothes. And I mean, that's also, it's, that's a humility, humiliating thing, like to not have access to the products that you need to be able to have a hygienic, as comfortable as possible period. Brittany, why do you think that period products are so expensive? You know, I don't really have a good answer for that. I mean, we can just chalk it up to capitalism um, because I don't know how expensive it is to produce a box of tampons or a box of pads. What I do know is that I personally don't think that there should be a tax on feminine products. The average state tax, I think, is like 6.25% or something like that, and I personally don't think the government should be making money off of feminine hygiene products. 
Um, these products are an absolute necessity for women. Um, and they're already expensive enough, so why are we taxing them? A lot of people in America have an inability to afford these feminine hygiene products. And you know what? Some, some states don't even allow you to purchase feminine hygiene products with food stamps. And that's really discriminatory to people that cannot, it's discriminatory to these people that cannot afford these necessary goods. Um, and I think the average woman in her lifetime spends something like $6,000 uh, on period products. And so that's expensive. That's a lot of money. And I don't think that those items should be taxed, but as to why they're so expensive to begin with, I can't answer that. It's almost like they're treating it as a luxury rather than a necessity. Exactly. So we've been talking a lot about, you know, tampons and modern products. Um, but are there other products out there besides tampons and pads? And what did people use before the invention of tampons? There are many other products out there. Uh, versions of sanitary napkins and tampons have been used for centuries. There is little physical evidence on the history of menstruation or feminine hygiene technologies, and it's not exactly well researched, and it just wasn't well documented, but I can tell you what I do know. In ancient Egypt, tampons were crafted from papyrus. In Greece and Rome, tampons were made out of lint wrapped around wood. In Japan, uh, they believe paper was used, and Native Americans crafted pads out of moss and buffalo skin. And women that preferred to handle their flows externally would tie strands of cloth or fabric into their undergarments to absorb blood flow, and then wash and reuse those cloths. And as you can imagine, with all of those early methods, there was probably a lot of leakage and they definitely were not hygienic. Before the invention of the sanitary belt, a belt that is used to keep pads in place, safety pins were used, and so um, people would just pin, women would just pin their cloths um, or sanitary napkins into their garments. Uh, in 1896, Johnson & Johnson released the Lister's Towel, and this was the first disposable sanitary napkin. So, like I said before, people were washing and hang-drying and then reusing their cloths. Uh, the first sanitary napkin featured an absorbent liner that would extend and attach to a girdle or sanitary belt, which were worn beneath undergarments. And belts and girdles were often adjustable, but they commonly slipped and were notoriously uncomfortable. Sanitary belts were common until the 1970s when adhesive pads were invented. And pads were more commonly used than any other feminine hygiene product until the mid 20th century. Nurses during World War I discovered the Cellucotton that they were using to staunch soldiers' wounds was also very effective at absorbing menstrual blood, um, so that was an interesting development. And the second most common form of menstruation product available to women was the tampon for a long time. On November 19, 1933, physician Earl Cleveland Haas patented the modern-day tampon with applicator. 
a German businesswoman named Gertrude Tindrick purchased Haas's patent on March 7th, 1936, and trademarked the name Tampax. And the name originated from uh, the words tampon and vaginal packs. And Tampax began mass production of tampons made of cotton with a cardboard applicator in 1936 and ran its first advertisement, I believe, in American Weekly in 1939. And Tampax still produces products to this day. In the 1940s, Dr. Judith Esser Mittag, a German gynecologist, designed the OB tampon, and OB stood for without applicator. So the OB tampon does not have an applicator, but features a concave tip on the end, and it's inserted with a finger. And in the late 1940s, Esser Mittag partnered with Carl Hahn to create a company and market the OB tampon, and they later ended up selling that company to Johnson & Johnson. And although tampons' popularity exponentially increased, many women were discouraged from using them because they were thought to be sexually improper. And a lot of people worried that tampons would promote sexual promiscuity or be considered a loss of virginity. Another product women can use to manage their periods is the menstrual cup. I think it's surprising to most people to learn that in the USA, the first prototypes of menstrual cups, also known as catamenial sacs, were patented in the 1860s and 1870s. The designs were inventions, um, but most of them never made it to the market. And the original design for the menstrual cup was inserted into the vagina and it was attached to a belt. And what's also really interesting is most of the early menstrual cups had different kinds of valves and were placed in the vagina and emptied without even removing the device. The first modern menstrual cups similar to the cups that we know today, was invented in 1937 by American actress Leona Chalmers, and she patented a design of menstrual cup which was made from latex rubber. And in her patent application, she stated that the design wouldn't cause discomfort and would provide concealment of one's period. The product allowed women to wear things that were closer fitting, and they didn't need a sanitary belt or safety pins to hold a pad in place. And unfortunately, during World War II, there was a shortage of rubber, and her company had to stop production. After the war, she made improvements on the design and patented a new one. Even though women's views on menstruation had progressed, they still weren't really open to the idea of using a menstrual cup, and it just goes back to the idea that using internal protection was sexually promiscuous. Women also didn't feel comfortable with the idea of emptying or cleaning the cup, um, menstrual cups were reintroduced in the market in the late 1980s with the creation of the Keeper, and this is a cup that is still sold today. We also now today have other successful menstrual cup companies with products like the Diva Cup or Lunette. Another new invention that is out um, that is a way to manage your period is period underwear. There are two types of period underwear that I'm aware of. One type is more of a physical aid. The underwear helps hold pads in place. It was designed to help prevent leakage and helped to prevent pads from shifting while wearing them. So even though all the pads today do have that adhesive backing on them, they still can shift with movement and activity. And so this underwear, it has a little section for you to like insert the pad into so that it doesn't move around while you're moving. Another company is She Thinks, and I think there's other companies that market 
and sell similar products to She Thinks, but She Thinks sells a period underwear that is made of special materials to help absorb and wick away period blood and prevent odor. And their mission is to provide comfortable period products that allow women to feel confident. And they also work to support initiatives that impact menstrual equality all around the world. And they have very modern and innovative marketing strategies that really connect with younger audiences and helps to further break down that stigmatization of periods. So can I ask, what is your ideal outlook on the future of period products and um, conversations about menstruation? I love that you asked that question. My hope is that as we continue to progress, that young girls would grow up with a better understanding of their bodies, that women will no longer be embarrassed or ashamed to talk about their periods openly, that will begin to use words like period and menstruation instead of euphemisms. I hope that more menstrual products move towards being organic and sustainable. I would love to see more period products being designed and made by women. Um, I'd love for tampons and pads to no longer be seen as luxury items, but as necessities that are easily accessible to all who need them because access to menstrual health and hygiene should be a right, not a privilege. Thank you, Brittany, for talking to us about menstruation and helping to end the stigma surrounding this topic. I can tell that you're very passionate about this. Yes, Trent, I am very passionate about this topic, and thank you for taking the time to discuss this topic with me and being comfortable talking about menstruation and periods, and because you are comfortable talking about this, it makes you one person that's working to break down that stigmatization of discussing menstruation, and I think that that is awesome. You know, I think um, this has been... a very important topic for us to discuss, so I can definitely see us talking about this again in the future. Yes, I hope so. Tune in next week for our next episode. This has been The Root of Random with Brittany and Trent. We hope that you've learned something useful. We hope that you've learned something random. <laughs> <laughs>